got to the letter five, but just to give us a bit of a recap, because also we're continuing this next month. And the reason why we're continuing this next month is, which is good because it will continue online, but also there'll be new people here next month, I believe. And the beauty about the 19 letters is that it is very easy to give a gripping recap that brings us into the present. Unlike the Kuzari, which I found very difficult to give a gripping recap of the beginning part of the Kuzari, which was gripping, exciting, and then, but as you get further down the road, it gets less gripping if you weren't there at the beginning. The 19 letters is not like that. We can summarize what's happened so far very simply as the story began with a complaint, a very vicious complaint against Judaism, but that the desire to learn, the response from um, Natali, which is Rav Hirsch, is that we have to understand Judaism from its own perspective not understand Judaism from the outside. Because if we try and understand Judaism from the outside, we're going to be asking the question of how Judaism can answer my issues. How can Judaism make me happy? So the Rav Hirsch first began by questioning the legitimacy of such a project. Whose happiness? Your happiness? Is happiness really what you are striving for? He then left that line of investigation and then went down the invest line of investigation of trying to appreciate what Judaism itself is looking for. Once you understand what Judaism itself is looking for, from its point of view, and that's always key, looking at the world through its lenses, and after you hear its narrative, you ask yourself, is this something I want to get behind? You then ask the question, how does the commandments in Judaism facilitate this vision? Then you have an image of Judaism. Once you've got that, you can then decide whether you are interested or not. Now, the reason why this is such a powerful opening is because often people don't do that. People say, why can't I turn a light on Shabbos? It's just this. Tell me I can't work on Shabbos. And when that happens, it's often a bit of a problem because there is so much background and so much, so much is missing from the conversation that to ask, answer a question in such a blip of an isolated question becomes untenable. Rav Hirsch is trying to develop a philosophy. And why is this important? Because when you go out in your life and you're trying to develop a philosophy, you won't necessarily take Rav Hirsch's vision, but you'll know what it's like to see the world through a lens. And then you'll develop your own through other thinkers that you like, but you'll be able to fit it into a lens on the world. And that's what I think Rav Hirsch does beautifully. How does he begin? He asks us, let's look at the world through the lens of the Tyra. And it's important to point out, he doesn't phrase it quite like this, but you might not actually believe it's true. Clearly the person he's talking to doesn't believe it's true. Because if he believed it's true, he'd be approaching it quite differently. He'd be like, there's this truth of this tire that's calling me, but I don't, I'm not sure. No, he's like, this is weird, go away. So we're almost being asked to suspend our disbelief, immerse ourselves in the narrative of the tire. Once we're finished, and he'll, he'll do this, but then he does it in other places, we can ask the question, okay, how does the Genesis narrative fit in our understanding of science today? How much of it has to fit? That, that is a genuine question, but often what happens, and especially the Kiravi worlds, that's all that the focus is on, of how does this stem with science as I understand it today, rather than asking the question, what is it actually calling me on? The first, the first letter was the response. Well, the first letter was the complaint, second letter was the response. Third letter was the description of the natural world. It was a description of how we look at the natural world. And the way Rav Hirsch described it was a, as a symphony, a symphony of giving, which is the natural world. Now, obviously it's wearing, it doesn't mean people, animals don't get hurt, but the world is this reciprocal giving that we are part of as human beings. We experience the world as that, but as humans, we transcend the world as well we can choose. We are not only part of the world, and then you move to the fourth letter, which is the description of mankind, and what mankind is here to do. Are we supposed to be part of this symphony, or are we supposed to draw ourselves away from that symphony and do something else? And the language of Hirsch uses, once again, he's looking at it through the lens of Genesis, to work and to guard. That is what we are called upon. We are called upon to be given to the world, not the world is us, ours as a gift for us to use. We are here in service. But the most noble service, the most important service, that is the image of mankind. The next stage is, okay, but then what comes next? What's next in the story? The education of mankind. And how does that come about? The first story, 
The first story is Eight Sadas, the tree of good and well, the tree of good and evil. The idea that the tree is the next stage in the story. So we have there's often a different way of looking at the Genesis story. People often don't look at the story of creation as a resource for meaning in life. But Rav Hirsch is describing it as just that. It is telling you as a human being your place in the world. And on some level, you are supposed to be giving to the world. Now let's just begin, let's apply. You ready? I have formed no different conception of you, dear Binyamin, than your recent letter gave me. What truth still capable of enthusiasm for the noble could contemplate heaven and earth and its hosts, or could reflect upon their work or the work of any single creature without forming a notion of his task in life constant with his dignity as a human being. That's a roundabout way of saying, well done, continue learning or going through this, these ideas that we're doing together. Or could do otherwise than to cast away with shame and contempt the idols of silver and gold and practically the universal idol pleasure. Meaning you began with this journey with me. You're doing this journey with me and that is noble because you've cast aside at least for the purposes of this journey, you've cast aside what you originally were striving for, which was how can the world give to me? We've now shifted the focus. What am I giving to the world? The object of such insights into the true mission of humanity and of the consequence, what was that say? Consequence, re consequent renunciation of sensual enjoyments. Thank you. Is not, however, indolent withdrawal from the active tasks of life, but on the contrary, manly vigor and the pursuit of the highest aims using human possessions and capacities, not however as an ends, but as a means. What's he saying? So just to, to break that down, to break that down, you are now involved in life, you, but you don't look at yourself, this, this mission that you have been you are, you are looking at the world through this lens of mission and purpose it doesn't call for you to sit at the side, but calls upon you to act, calls upon you to do, calls upon you to use your possessions, but not as you originally thought, as an end. My stuff gives me things, but as a means. Yes. Okay, wait, sorry. I got a little confused. Natali is the rabbi yeah. and Benjamin is yeah. the person. So these are all letters that the rabbi is sending. Yeah. He's not getting any responses. Back. No, no, no. He's making up the responses back. Oh, he sometimes talks. It's actually interesting. There's another letter that Rapersh wrote, which isn't as popular and it wasn't made into a 19 letters type of thing. This is Rapersh describing his worldview and the relationship to the mitzvahs to his worldview. He has one where he defends orthodoxy and against reform in a similar sort of style. And it's it's as uh, it's as uh, decimating in the way he writes it. He writes it to a chap called Simon, but um, but no, he makes up the. He, he, it's a story. He's making up a story. He like talks about dreams, and it's like gets really funky. But um, but uh, yeah, so it, he, he's making this up. So the reason why I think it's worth us, even though I could take snippets out, but even though sometimes it's a bit wordy. It's because a you can look at it again afterwards, and you can. It's in English, and it's it's translated from German, but it's 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 top English. There is a better translation that made it a bit more readable. But either way, simply speaking, he's complimenting Binyamin in going on this journey with him. He's complimenting, but, but, but in a specific way that you've shifted your perspective. The world isn't giving to me; I am giving to the world. He's calling on Binyamin to adopt responsibility, and complimenting him on this endeavor. The richer heaven makes you in internal and external possessions, the more exhaustive fulfillment of his will he demands of you. The wider extended and all embracing does your duty become. Now it's actually interesting because often people think like, why am I, why do I, why, you're, you're trying to sell religion to me. How are you selling religion to me by telling me I have all this responsibility? The answer is yes, Ravesh wasn't an idiot. He didn't think that the idea of selling religion or show, first of all, obviously he thought it was true, but he recognized that when you tell someone that they have responsibility, the greater responsibility, the greater the meaning. And we are meaning seeking animals. We strive for meaning in life. And Rav Hirsch is saying, no, this isn't just a meaning. This is the ultimate responsibility. And the more powers you have, isn't just more you get to do, but it is more responsibility you have. 
using Judaism as the language of duty actually calls to people who are searching. Yes. I'm sorry, I think I missed something. So like Pierce is talking about, he's kind of talking about being grateful. Like the more heaven gives to you, the more you have a duty to it. Like you have to be grateful. Like you're grateful. Like you you have a like you have an obligation to like repay kind of like so I, you're yeah, along those lines. So I'll, I'll praise it. Rather than looking at Judaism as I'm here and Hashem gives me things, I should be grateful to Hashem. I'll give tzedakah, mm-hmm. right? That's one way of looking at my relationship with Hashem. There's Hashem there. I'm living my life. Nobody articulates it quite like this, but this is a classic understanding of orthodoxy. It's like, I have my life and I do my Jewish things and I have to do my Jewish things and I have to be, why do I do them? That framing is not what Rav Hirsch is doing. Rav Hirsch isn't framing it that I have my life and there's these things that I have to be grateful to the deity. He gave me things. Mm-hmm. I, I, I give tzedakah. I daven. And so says, why are you doing this? Look how much he's given you. And if you reflect on how much Hashem has given you. Someone snippets this out. I'm going to be so embarrassed. <laughs> if, if Hashem, how much Hashem has given you and how beautiful that is. And how much wouldn't you want to just daven to Hashem and serve Hashem? That framing is, I am here. God, need, God is there. I'm giving stuff because I owe him. Rav Hirsch is saying, no. You're called on a mission. There is a reason for you being here. And there is a duty you have to accomplish. Framing it like that means that there's not God there. I'm with God. I'm walking with God. There's a really cheesy way of saying this, even though it's not a... Uh, we actually had it just in this week's parasha. The, a neighbor. We are partners with Hashem. That idea, and the cheesy word is tikkun but it's not cheesy, it's in it's in Alenu, but it's just used as a bit of a cliche. But the point that her Hirsch is making here is that there is something to be accomplished. It's not just I'm here and God wants to give to me. So it makes me part and parcel with the story. It's ennobling in a very meaningful way. Now Rav Hirsch is going to develop it to the next stage of okay, how does this story develop and how does this idea of purpose develop to from cosmic um need to serve the world at the very beginning to Shatness, Jew. That, that, that is a journey that we're going on now. Hashem gives us things because we have a mission. So the things, everything we're given is to help satisfy our mission. The Therefore, our duty is to fulfill our mission. Exactly. Thank you. No, thank you. Um, you are right also in saying that the mere contemplation of the abilities of man is sufficient to prove it is his duty to accomplish some ends. Consider furthermore how his whole physical intellectual constitution clearly indicates the task for carrying out of which he is adapted. His head is bore proudly erect and his eyes may be examined. Okay, this is interesting. Um, uh, what's the word? Like a, uh, it's sort of like intelligent design, but it's, he's not doing that. He's just, it, it's a, a poetic way of saying if you see mankind in the context of the creation of meaning, he's not saying, oh, we see man seems to have purpose. No, he, he believes in the Torah first. It's always important to understand that. Rapesh isn't arguing for the truth of the Torah now. He's looking at the lens, the world through the lens of the Torah. And he says, if we look at humanity through the lens of the Torah, it is clear he is here for something unique. We clearly transcend the world and not only part of the world. And his head is, the world in which he moves, his hands are equipped with mobile fingers, admirably fitted for the work of the artist and sculptor, his intellectual power is sufficient to know things which shall serve him as a means to his ends. But beyond that path of knowledge is difficult and dangerous and pursued by, but by few. The development of his mental force itself, dependent upon external means, upon words and communications, but in, what does that say? Contradistinction. There too, the heart, the source of all, the heart is sort of capable of embracing all beings in regards and love is capable of the greatest increase of ultimate progress, unlimited progress, meaning mankind has ultimate potential, ultimate potential. Mankind has a huge amount of potential. When we look at mankind through the lens of creation, we see something special, something that has the, that is clearly here for a noble purpose. We're not like the rest of the animal world. We're not like the rest of the world of creation. There is something that humanity is here for, clearly, that distinguishes us from the, 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 the animals in the world. And, and I don't want to go through like specific individual parts, because there's also a certain poetic flair that is being given over here as well. You are right. 
Let's see if we get to that part I wanted to get to today. Is this reading working for people? Yeah? 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 It's okay. Would you like to read? <laughs> you are right also in asserting that un this un thus understood revelation of the divine will is absolutely required. Now, this is what the, what does he mean by that? The revelation of the divine will is absolutely required. Just to take a bit further, whether external or internal or both, I am not at all surprised that you cannot follow me in my biblical interpretations for the present. Therefore, accept my outlined in sentiments as though they were mere personal, they were as though they were, were mere personal hypothesis of my own. Investigation, their intrinsic, uh, investigate their intrinsic truth. Familiarize yourself with the thought. How would it be if this were really the contents of the Torah? That brings us back to our first point, two points he's making, the need for revelation. And also pretend I'm right. And, and the reason why I just want to emphasize, and this will be emphasized again and again, why is that so important to, to pretend I'm right? Because when you're talking to someone who's interested in Judaism, which you might do in your life, you want to bypass that barrier of, I have to be convinced of the truth of it to be able to hear its story. He's bypassing that. You don't understand what I'm talking about necessarily, but take it for the ground, take for the moment that what I'm saying is right. Live in that story. Why is revelation essential? Otherwise you might do things like only for yourself, like your will wouldn't be, why, okay. Without revelation, then you, then you're pretty, then, wait, in the context of these letters? No, in the context of Judaism and your purpose. Well, without revelation, then, um, then you're, then you're like, you, then there's no, there's no purpose and you're like lost. You wouldn't know what the purpose is. Yeah, exactly. And then it would be like whatever you subjectively think it is, and then that's not actually. So exactly that that that's one of the this is a, the the parallels you'll see with Rabbi Yehuda Halevi. The idea that revelation is an essential component of our relationship with Hashem. Judaism as a system doesn't make sense without revelation. It's it, it's nice ideas, but the revelation is another way of saying this is like the benchmark or the hook where it's. I don't want to use the word objective because it's a strange word to use in this context, but it is a calling to that which is ultimate. It comes from outside the system that makes sense of the system. To put it in, uh, into simpler language, if I have a teapot that's boiling, the why the teapot is boiling doesn't come from inside the teapot. It's from someone who wants a coffee. It has to come from outside the system. To make sense of a system, you can mull around with inside, inside the system and create meaning for yourself. And you can do that. And many people around the world do that. But when they say meaning, they mean meaning in a very different way than we mean meaning. When a religious person says meaning, Jewish or, or Christian, whatever, when they say meaning, they mean meaning in the cosmic sense, that existence itself has a reason for being. When a person says, my meaning in life is that I'm saving whales, or my meaning in life is I'm helping homeless people, that is beautiful, commendable. Each one of them is beautiful and commendable. But what happens if your meaning included that as well? But it also included so much more. It included the entire reason for being itself. That's where revelation becomes essential. He's saying that like take for granted that I'm right, even just about the existence of God. Oh yeah. By the way, it's another good point. He hasn't said God exists yet. But he's taking it. It's like the same sort but of thing. Because he has said that a creator exists. It's like a very but, but, so. But that's by the way, that's how you can have a conversation with someone about. For example, let me give it a very down to earth example. When you're talking. Um, you, you go back to America, Australia, England, wherever you go back to, you go back and someone says like, why you apparently you became religious? And like, super weird. <laughs> and, and you're like, well, come to a Shabbat meal. To articulate to someone what you've internalized over a year in seminary is going to be very difficult. And anything you try and say, you'll feel constantly the need to justify with other premises. So there's Shabbos and there's this and there's that. But obviously there are these ideas that I've got that I would love to explain to you, but it would just be weird and take too long. What Rav Hirsch is doing here is you might not accept my premises. You might not accept that there's a God. You might not accept, you, might, you just might think existence is random, but hear my story. Hear the story from your tradition. Hear it and suspend your question about uh, my analytical question. Suspend that for the moment. Once you've heard the story, we can bring that back in. We can ask the question, does a God exist? Because if you don't suspend it, the question of whether a God exists is actually, it's like a mute point, who cares? 
if you have no story, it's like when people ask, uh, no one in history has been convinced of an argument of the existence of God through an argument to the existence of God. I don't know if that's true necessarily, but it kind of makes true, makes sense. Nobody reads the teleological argument or the ontological argument or the cosmological argument and goes, oh my God. So, but that's not what he's doing. It, what does he do in that book? You believe already. So when a person says, can you show, people say that like, so a person, that, that's a great book for a person who is convinced already, just wants a bit of like, I don't know, chizuk. So, so he doesn't even have to be that vigorous in his argumentation. He's preaching to the choir, in which case, which is, which is the purpose of his book. It's not trying to do anything else. But you already are brought in by the story when you hear the argument for God. That's why Rafael is approaching it this way. Once a person hears what the Jewish idea of God is calling you on, if I then say, okay, wait a minute, that is unbelievable. I love that story. I love that was my ancestry when on this, which he'll take us on that journey. Yeah. <laughs> is it true? Okay, let me see the idea of a God existing. How convinced are I of that? Okay, there's six or seven arguments that I think are fairly okay. I think I could put together a fairly decent argument that there exists something to reality that is beyond reality. Okay, now the Jewish specific claim, they have this Hasinai claim, this idea of national revelation that historically seems to be a bit weird. They have this survival, which seems to go against the classical laws of history and whatever other people use these days. That together with the story can motivate a person to say, I'm living this one out. Mm-hmm. But going it back this direction is, prove to me that God exists. Like, what would that even mean? Well, to prove to you a, hypo- a, a, a concept of some sort of abstract being, and that's going to move you? No, of course not. You've got to be brought in by the story first. Yeah. I mean, what do you say about the concept of like, they want to do, like, what's the truth? I think, I'm not saying it's me. Like, I'm more of, like, I want to believe in Judaism and find it, like, like, traditions tradition from, like, doing it. Um, and I think it's possible that it's strong for people to marry There are some people who are like, oh, I want to find the truth and I want to do that. So they would be compelled by the mm-hmm. that is God, because that God exists on the like, so what I would say to such a person is, uh, I don't think that actually makes sense. Meaning to ask me, is Judaism true? Meaning what? Did Hasinai happen? Let's say it did. There's a whole content to it happening. It's not like, it, it, you can't extract the, the relevance, the meaning, the calling from the claim. When a person says, does si- did Sinai happen? They don't mean, did an event happen in the desert? No, what they mean by that is, did an event happen in the desert that involves all this story stuff to it? You can't, ex- you can't separate the two. In the reference to the existence of God, even then, when a person says the existence of God by way of an argument, all these arguments will ever give you is some abstract force of reality. That I'm saying, even a person says I'm dri- driven by pure logic and pure truth, so they have a hypothesis that they think is true, that doesn't tell them to do anything. When they say, no, I'm going to live that out, you're already in the world of meaning and purpose and mission. A person can't say, I want to do Judaism, but without any of the emotional meaning. I just want to do the truth. That doesn't make sense. So let me say, put it this way. If we could find a person who hates everything about Judaism, yeah. he hates Judaism, he hates Jews, he hates everything about the calling of the Jew, but he feels he's compelled to do it by the force of reason itself. I, I don't think that such a person could exist. We can have difficulty with Judaism. Be a person would be very unhealthy mentally. The entire concept of why it's really good. Oh, it'd be interesting to see such a I, I wouldn't. I don't believe I have one of my, my um, one of my rabbis. He can be quite stark with his uh, harsh with his language. So the person who who claims that they are doing Judaism because they heard an argument, he said, is either crazy or lying. Is either crazy or lying. If a person is doing Judaism because he heard an argument, that that got him to do it. What are you saying? What do you mean by that when you say like a person would never do it just from argument alone? What like you're to take it one step further? You're saying like you need the revelation. That's what you're saying. You need the, you need the core. Not to follow Judaism, but to like no like 
Ah, so the, no, that's a, this is separate. The idea of revelation is the point that from a, uh, I suppose, a simple logical standpoint, to have meaning to a system, it has to come from outside the system. Right. That's why Judaism as a system requires the idea of revelation. Did revelation actually take place is another discussion. And that could be an intellectual discussion, whether you think it's an actual, there's evidence for it ha of happening. I don't know how you would find such evidence. Oh, I'm but, not talking about What do you mean by then, by I've revelation? Heard, like a, so each individual person, like a revelation. Oh. Ah, fair. That's what I'm so, saying. So he does... Every person needs that, not just an argument, is what I'm saying. To oh, me. interesting. Like, oh, like you can't do it from argument alone. You're saying every individual person. So we, we're using the word revelation in two different senses. Oh, yes. So revelation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I suppose. But the... Right. So, okay. It's, it's very interesting. Very good point. Can we go back and someone's like, so you're I would say, let me, if, if I could tell you why I feel called to this, and then I, you know, why are you called to this? Say, well, because I, I found it, I mean, I don't say you should say this. If someone asked me, why do I follow Judaism? Obviously you can say that like, I can't extract myself from my history and like all, all the things subjectively talking to me in the here and now, I've had to justify my way of life is that I would say, Along the line, and obviously I'm born into it, and obviously these things are taken into account. But if I had to explain on the here and now why I why do I follow Judaism, it's because I consider it the most noble calling, and I feel compelled by its calling to live my life in a certain direction. That person says, "What? What's so noble about Judaism?" It's oh, a great question. Come learn to no. <laughs> you would say to them. You would say to them that um, I, I find it the most noble endeavor that I can live my life on. And if I've got and I have this thing, it's called the. Uh, you can have it. You can buy a uh, buy a print out. It's called a um, they call it a memento more calendar. Very dark. Yes. Uh, uh, is that um, remember we must die? You exactly. Okay. And they basically you have a, a, a boxes of the mm -hmm. weeks of the year, big big thing on the wall, and you have a you have a ninety to your ninety to your zero, and you have you can literally look at your life and see how much of your life stepped. You might die before your ninety, but it's very very um. It's terrifying. So, I, I, yeah, but, but that's, but but no. But, but, but what's the what's the what's the point? You, what's the point you would say to the person? What's the point you would say to the person? I have a short life. Life is short. I have to choose, and I found this to be the most noble calling I could take. And they're like, that opens the question. Why is it so noble? And they said that's that 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 is why I spent time in seminary. We can definitely chat about it. And if a person's a super rational and says, yeah, but you believe it's true, like, is it, is it, first let me explain to you why I think it calls me. And then I can also just explain to you why I think it's true. And you can separate the two. Meaning that you can take, you have to take the first things why you're interested. And then, because by the way, it's also important to point, the amount of weight you would need towards the argument is also relevant to what it's asking you to do. Everything's based on a balance of evidence. Nobody's seen God and nobody saw Sinai and nobody saw Abraham. In which case, how much reason what is adequate for me to, I want to say believe, what is adequate for me to live my life in this direction? That's why they don't teach you like certain thought or something wrong, like believing something mm -hmm. in it to a certain amount because that's really that's heavy. Yeah, like of course, like they, you always have to learn. Yeah, like you can't carry out the uh, yeah, like, you start with like the basic principles mm -hmm. and then you learn a little more because mm -hmm. by the time you get to like that halacha that like to a past you. Would have made you like run for the hills. Ah, see. Interesting. But I think that's legitimate. I think that's legitimate. Yeah. Sure. It's, not, it's, not, it's not sneaking. It's because there's things have to be built yeah, off other principles. Right. Yeah, that's very cool. So it, it, simply speaking, that in places like age, they, they do a bit of that. But also remember, the people who are drawn into that, they're already they, they're interested already. Often it gives also, for some people, point, it gives them, it shows that Judaism has a bit of an intellectual backing, which allows them to enter into the conversation. If some people, it's an entry level to see, oh, wow, there's like something actually interesting here. Not that they're convinced by that, but maybe allow them to come into the conversation. Um, for me, when I was younger, it took just a teacher, to, for me to experience a teacher in my, when I was 24, to find a, a, a teacher who was, who had thought about things in a way that I thought was impressive, that it made me get more involved in Judaism. Yeah. That's like outing someone. <laughs> no, no, no. So, so, so uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your disposition, uh, no, I was always religious. But it's one of those things that you go on journeys, even if you're religious, because um, 
what I mean by that is that when I was speaking to someone like um, person, when you were questioning, I went through stages in my life where I was questioning and I was doubting. I'm still doubting, but I'm still questioning. But there was times that it was more intense. The person says, "Well, then why? Did, if you if you if you were doubting and questioning, why didn't you drop it?" I said, well, "I'm not an idiot. <laughs> like, why would I do such a bizarre thing? Like, well, I'm struggling with my religious faith at the moment. Completely uproot and decimate my entire social and cultural life. Why? If I if I worth pointing out if I was suffering in that life then maybe I was would have but I wasn't so why would I why do I say that to my students it's because I want to point out to them my commitment to Shabbat it's not only because I find inspired it's also because I was brought up in it so it's a lot easier that makes sense right let's jump let's jump let's jump back into it thank you how would it sorry uh, leave it to to demonstrate sorry uh, leave it to me to demonstrate later that such is really the case. Meaning, we'll argue it for later. Let us now continue. We have now, guided by the Torah, ascertained the position of man in creation. Done. That was last letter. Now, neither, uh, neither as God nor as slave shall he stand in the midst of the creatures of the world, but as a brother, a co-working brother, occupying, however, the rank of the firstborn amongst beings, brother beings. Meaning there is a brotherhood with you and the raccoon. There is something that you, you share with the raccoon. You're not a slave to the raccoon. You're not a master of the raccoon. There is a brotherly, but at the same time, the same way the Jewish people are called, Bani Bechairi, we are the Bechar of the world. We are the ones who take a special place in the world, but we are also part of the world. Because the particular nature and the extent of his service, he is to be administrator of the divine estate. The whole, the entire world to provide and care for all therein according to the will of Hashem. For Hashem alone, source of might, does man derive the right to take for his own use of the uh, of the earth, but with the right comes also duty. Only an appropriate, only a, only to appropriate the permitted and to use that in strict accordance with the divine will of the giver. Good should be for him only that which agrees with the divine will, with the disposition fixed from objects by divine wisdom, evil only which that stands opposed to those principles. Not that should be deemed good or evil, which is agreeable or disagreeable to him. Man, which is pleasant or unpleasant and sensual by nature, or this is actually quite important, which harmonizes or opposed to the principles arbitrarily selected by him without reference to the divine will. Now, he's now gonna discuss the tree of good and evil. I'll give you a bit of a, a, an introduction to that. What did he just say? Good, in, in essence, if we identify what we mean by Hashem as the ultimate good, when we want to live by Hashem's will, what are we doing? Th 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 there is a will of Hashem, which is an objective thing that I want to live my life in accordance with, and that is the good. And that which goes against Hashem's will is evil. Now, uh, in isolation, that sounds really creepily religious. What do as a person do? So obvious that and the point that he develops here is that when it comes to something good, it's not always that which is sweet. Yeah. And when it's bad, it's not always that which is ugly. It, it is based on it is the will. That, so when, if we can put it in more in less theologically loaded language, if I if there is an ultimate good to reality, if I'm in the pursuit of beauty and truth and the good, in like the, the, the Greek sense of the word, when a Jew says, I have reached the ultimate good, and I'm identifying that with what we mean by Hashem, you need revelation for that. You, you need Hashem to tell you that. Otherwise, you just have, the person says like, I believe it is, it, there, was a, there was a very, there was a famous philosopher who said, um, you know people who say I'm spiritual, but not religious. Yeah. It's like wanting to speak, but not having a language. What do you mean by that? You're spiritual, but not religious. Religious requires you to act on your spirituality. Otherwise, it's a weird sort of narcissism of you, what, you, what do you mean by spiritual at that point? So, I'm not sure, maybe. <laughs> we're going to get to it. We're, we're, we're getting to our Zara in a minute. We're getting to our But perhaps it's, it's, it's a sort of language, but you're not embodying it. So, so, so in opposed to the principle, for neither the gratification of the impulses and lust nor ambitious of self-agorization and caprice constitute the task of a man for this dyslexic person is absolute hell, but he shall evaluate all of his... No, I listened to it twice before I came. Um, 
power, desires, and physical qualities to be means of carrying out the will of Hashem, of bringing him nearer to his sought, uh, sought for goal. Man's freedom, of course, postulates the possibility of mistake and error. Man, we, we are free. That allows the possibility for us to fail. So how is he, how's he? Man is in his elevated position because he is free. We have the ability to carry out the will of God and the ability not to carry out the will of God. What does it mean to carry out the will of God? It means to live the good life. It means to do the right thing. How do we know what the will of Hashem is? That's the Torah. And that I, and once again, he's not arguing for it to be, he's presenting it like this. Now, it's, this, this idea is shared in all the classical monotheistic religions. When we talk about Hashem, we mean the ultimate good. We don't mean a capricious God who's up there who wants cake. We, we mean Hashem, which is that which is outside existence, which is what we mean by good. So when a person just bringing it, drawing it back into going back to America, when a person like, what do you mean? Like, you're an Evid Hashem, you serve God. You can use, I can use less theologically loaded language. I am in pursuit of the, I'm in, I'm trying to live my life in line with the ultimate good, with that which is the best I possibly can. And from my experience, that is the Torah. And a person can point to an aspect of the Torah that seems to stand against that. I said, oh, Kilamolik. And you can admit, that's a hard one. I don't know how that fits into line with this. But two things. One, I don't have to do that right now. So it's not something that has to drop trouble me too much. But yeah, that's a problem. And the Jewish tradition struggles with it. Why does the Jewish tradition go nuts and haywire over decimating Amalek? Which it does. It has a hum and a har about it. Why, when it comes to Ben Sarah is there such a, how could this work? How does it make sense that a son could do that? Why is there that discussion taking place? Because there is a assumption, the bedrock, that what we mean by Hashem is the ultimate good, the ultimate judge, the ultimate justice, the good, whatever you want to frame it. That is the assumption that, is the, that lies at the bedrock of Judaism. Though the way he puts it here, um, Okay, man, I think I may have missed something out there, but for the moment, let's carry on. Man has the duty to submit willingly to the law, which all others are compelled to obey. And this naturally implies that he also has the power to disobey it. Everything else follows Hashem's will. Naturally, we have the ability to stand apart from Hashem and not do Hashem's will. Though his animal portion, his body with its desires, he is threatened with sensual lust that dazzles by the charms of the present. One second. Because I just want to, I want to get to the tree of good and evil, even if it means I have to, we have to, I'll say it to you outside. Okay. So, so let's, let's, let's carry on. Let's carry on. That dazzled with the child, sorry, one second, sensual, which the divine lamb has caused to occupy every act of sanctifying his needs. He may no longer regard pleasure as the means, but as the ends itself. Meaning when a person is a, um, a person goes down this road of satisfying himself and it being about himself, we can use a modern language. When he becomes egotistical, everything becomes how I can use it. How will it sanctify and satisfy my needs? Once again, the person shifted. He's no longer in service to the world. He is now, the world is in service to him. And I'm sure we can think of contemporary examples about how people are looking at the world as what they can take from it and never about what they can give to it. Though the power of his intellect, he is threatened with pride. That is because his ability to control material things and to alter them in accordance with certain privilege, uh, um, perceived purpose. He may look upon himself as master, forgetting thereby God, the Lord, forgetting also that all things are divine. Tervations lent to him for specific purposes and may usurp himself the right to subject all to the domination of his will. Deepest disregard may result when his entire effort is devoted to gratification of animal lust, and the mind of the ruler lowers itself to be a slave of the beast, employing all its skill only to secure the gratification of bestial desires. That then is man the most dangerous beast of prey, for he is armed with intellect. We are, we're not only that we are part of nature, not only are we also a part of nature because we have free will with the ability to choose to become. Once you have that potential, you could be the greatest. You could be the firstborn of creation. You could be the Bahar, but you also have the ability to be the most devastating thing in the world. 
you have the ability to be the most bestial animal of prey. As we know, humanity can be, a lion isn't evil. When a lion rips apart, but humanity has the ability to be, uh, the malevolence that humanity has the ability to sleep to, with her, she's put that's down to our free will. And the whole world is not safe against the caprice of his possessions, oh, passions. The whole world is not safe against Scripture admits to narrate any revelation of God's will to mankind in general, as it reserves this for a later in history, a specific nation, to all that proceeds serves only as a guide and an introduction, meaning specifically what Hashem wants of the world is a nation gets, which we'll discuss later. But now it's more general introduction. One educational commandment appears. Now this is the education of mankind, meaning we have a purpose, we have a reason for being. Now this is Hashem taking us along that line. Humanity appears on the scene. And then man and his education by God are shown. A world is laid at man's feet for him to possess and enjoy. But one enjoyment is without revealed reason. One thing you are told not to do. Solely as a decree of the Most High. Now, I'm going to stop here inside for the moment. We are told one thing we cannot do. Don't eat, eat from the tree. Now, yes. this is why this is Rapersha's understanding of the commandment of not to eat from the tree of good and evil. Why that tree? Because I, I, as we're not having a class next week, I just want to. Anyway, I'll continue on that. Hey, wait, wait, wait. Hold on a second. Hold the phone, hold the phone. Guys, the world is not safe. Oh, really? No, Scott, you put me Oh, no. Like, you look really bad. You are funny. I just, I. Sometimes I can't read sarcasm. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Okay. So, simply speaking, he looks at the idea of the tree of life, the tree of good and evil. Why is it called that? Because it's treating us, teaching us a fundamental lesson. But what is beautiful isn't good. By definition, there is a temptation. It's a beautiful tree and it tastes good, and thereby it must be okay to eat. Hashem is teaching humanity an essential lesson that you are told not to eat from the tree. Why this tree? Because there are some things that look beautiful that are bad. Some things that you may really want to do, but they're bad. If we just look at our internal moral compass, we can be taken down the road of evil. The point about this, there being this objective framework that the Torah is giving us is the idea that sometimes that which is beautiful is bad. The beautiful isn't always synonymous with the good. And here you have the opening of Genesis, that first fundamental lesson to humanity. Why good evil? Because you were commanded not to. And if you did, that would be evil. And if you didn't, that would be good. Not internalized. That's a whole other way of looking at it. Man was free from the get-go. And why is it called the tree of good and evil? The way Rav Hirsch describes it is Al-Shem Saifai. From the point of view of how it would be lived out. Did man eat from it? Yes. And then it was the, the tree of evil. If man would have resisted, it would have been man accepting that he has an internal moral compass, but he also has a command. And the point of that first commandment being a symbolic representation of what it means to be commanded, what it means to have that framework that sometimes I want to do something, but I know I have to hold back because it's wrong. So uh, last couple of minutes, let's just uh, jump into the, the thing over here. Um, he already wrote the book. No, I can only talk. I can't write. Yeah. But anyway, um, that's why we have chat. That's why we have chat. That's why we have chat GPT to make all authors. By the way, it's actually quite, quite creepy. My friend of mine wrote, uh, give me a Dvatara for a Shevabrachas with a good gematria on uh, Pesach and Shavuos and connect it to this name and this name, chat GPT. Oh, yeah. It's made, it's made, it's made rabbis obsolete. Um, but the willing, the willing, to, so, so the man should subjugate himself to his creator. And for the highest wisdom consists of obeying the will of God as the will, as the will of his God. 
not shadows, but, but the will of God as the will of his God. Yeah, it's, 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 it, you are being commanded. But to be willing to fulfill the behest of that which only when or because they appear also to us right and wise and good could be, could that be called obedience to God? Meaning, meaning if I'm only following my own intuition and my own what I want, then once again, that's not service. That's not pursuing the highest good. That's pursuing me. It becomes, it's one, one of the ideas that when learning Rapesh, I, I think it makes kind of more sense because I interject quite a bit. But often when people, they, they never get this far because they hear language like, I have to commit myself to Hashem and Hashem's will and I have to do what Hashem's will. This is like really preachy, really disconnected. But when you, when you break it down in the contemporary light, I find it so moving because if it's just about, yeah. Well, wait, sorry. Uh, would an example of this be like, so that's the sort of thing he's, he's, he's pointing to. Remember, he's in the context of reform playing guitar. Exactly. That's right. An organ. Would not that rather be obedience to oneself? Lust and desire for pleasure tempt us with seductive words. How attractive is it? How agreeable? How sweet? Pride of intellect adds also the contribution of the words. Um, dictate by desire, have, have not we also mind, intelligence, and understanding? Can we not, like gods, know for ourselves what is good and bad? Why nothing is easier. How easy it is. It is conceivable that it should not be good. Is it conceivable that it should not be good? Besides, unto us belongs the earth and the fulfillment thereof. Thus, only the sweet is regarded by man as good and bad, only the bitter. The history of all sin is the same. God revealed himself as judge, but also as father and teacher. Verily, excellent. Judgment is his prerogative. For it does, okay, let's pause here. Hashem, so Hashem not only introduces himself as judge, but also as father. Meaning, the metaphor of father is that which is teacher. Meaning, you have the idea that Hashem commanded uh, not to eat from the tree. Thereby, they disobeyed. Hashem is judge, meaning, once again, we're talking here not as specific commands. Rapesh says, well, point of Genesis isn't a specific command, don't eat from a tree. There's no tree right now. But this is introduction in how we're approached, we are approaching the world and meaning the tree we were told not to eat from. Man ate from the tree. Hashem is judge, but Hashem is also teacher. What does that mean? First of all, sin happens. And guess what? It's an educational experience. It was a learning stepping stone. There is something that is learned from this, and thereby the history of mankind, by way of an introduction before we get to the Jewish people, is a, a passage of education. That principle that we've already ascertained from the first story, that symbolic structure of that which is bitter, isn't always bad. And that which is sweet isn't always good. It's a fundamental that it's not all about me. If it was all about me, then it's one of those things that you, you have the contemporary world holding on to a Jewish ethic but losing the, like the, the metaphysical structure, meaning you have this obligation to protect the planet Earth. I don't see where, from a purely logical standpoint, the person who's going to be around here for 60 years shouldn't just take whatever you can get from it. The person says, no, you shouldn't do that. Why? I want to. A person, you can envision a person not being irrational and saying that. You might say he might not have the best life, he might not have friends, right? But a person can make such a claim. The point of the Torah saying is the first point we're told here is that just because it looks good doesn't mean it's good. And just because it tastes bitter doesn't mean it's bad. That's the first educational principle that in a way, it, it, that when you have these symbolic ideas at the bedrock and like what you can call it the embryonic stage, that manifests throughout the rest of the Torah. Yes? This needs to also be kind of implying, even though I know it's not his main point, his main point here. But it also, but it sounds like he's kind of grown like obedience to something that you already want to do isn't really serving God. And it's only serving God if it's something that isn't. So it's a tricky one because it's a very, very good point. And on this point, we will, we will end. The idea of something being, you, you get into a, a vicious cycle, whatever it's called. If I want to do it, maybe it's about me, but then I should not want to do it. But then I should train myself not to want to do it. So there's this idea of Pirkei that I want to make Hashem's will my will. So what does that, what does that mean? In, from a Hersh's standpoint, I have to become the type of person who identifies with what I mean by Hashem. If I mean by Hashem, uh, I don't know, evil monster, then I don't want to identify with his will. I may obey him so he doesn't hurt me, but if I understand Hashem being that ultimate good, 
can you think of anything more noble than identifying my will with his will? Because then I become an embodiment of living out the ultimate good in the world. Thereby, I should be attracted by the good. So if I want to serve Hashem, because I identify what I mean by Hashem as being the ultimate good, I should have a burning desire to want to do that. Ah, there'll be times when it's difficult. Okay, then I have to overcome that difficulty. But if I become the type of person who's completely in line with Hashem's will, and it flows naturally, that's the ultimate goal. Exactly, because that's why they say, make my will, your will, my will. Yeah. So we have two choices before you, and we want you want your will to be Hashem's will, and don't know which choice is the one that Hashem is willing. Yeah. That's very tricky. And you'll 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 have many of decisions in life, and you'll mess up a bunch of times. Uh, that's a very negative way of putting it. But you you reflect, you ask advice, you you, you ask people who are hopefully more objective than you. Probably you're not an objective person. When we ask people, that's the point why advice is such an important principle. That's why you have friends. When you are at a big crossroad in life, in a, in a day to day thing, you you often most of these things we don't reflect on. But the idea is the big events where we've got these two things in front of us, and we're not sure which is the right direction to go. The um, there's a philosopher called Jean-Paul Sartre gives the example. He was a big atheist, but he, he gave the example of two. He's like, either he goes to war. It was during the, the time of war. Either I go to war, but then I leave my mother at home to die. Or I stay with my mother, but then I'm not facing the Nazis. I'm not facing evil. And I'm letting my, which, which choice do I do? You know, so his, his, his point were condemned to choose. But it, not, there isn't necessarily a right answer. You just have to do your best. Often in life, it's about me trying my best to be as, as least egocentric as possible when I make a decision. To try to see how much of me and my own personal I want is part of the conversation. And that's where, that's where the idea of lessening the ego, I say lessening, you don't ego death, we're not going down that road, but trying to be as unselfish as possible, but without it becoming a, 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 a what's the word? Without it hurting you. It's a difficult balance to strike. It's very easy to be a doormat. You know people, I know people like that. They just get trodden on. Does that mean they're a good person? No, it means they have no person. So it's a very difficult thing to strive. And that's why, back to our beginning part of the conversation, a wise person, which is a person I would ask advice to, is a person who I think has, has mastered that. Then you ask advice from them. And then hopefully with time, you become 